0: but i wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing a Podcast. Hello again and welcome to Serial Killing a Podcast where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. So, today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on a revisit of Jerry Brudos. On a rare occasion, I do these revisits for a few reasons. One, it's fun to retell the story of the most notorious serial killers that I haven't touched in years, and two, it is also fun for me to go back and review and see if anything new has been brought to light and compare my thoughts today as opposed to years ago and so on. So here we go. Jerome Henry Brutos was born on January 31st, 1939 in Webster, South Dakota so as we do, let's get into some history for that time. So 1939 was a pivotal year because this is the year that Germany attacked Poland, which led to France, Australia, and the UK declaring war on Germany and thus the beginning of World War II. Also, Russia tried to negotiate a land deal with Finland, but Both of the offers and counteroffers were rejected on both sides, so Russian troops invaded Finland. The purpose of the conflict was that the Soviet Union wanted to exchange certain lands with Finland so that the Russian city of Leningrad would be better protected as the Second World War began. The Women's Auxiliary Air Force, or WAAF, was created in the United Kingdom in 1939. It was established by King George VI as the outbreak of World War II became more imminent. They were trained in and assigned a variety of jobs, including cooks, code breakers, administration work, engineers, drivers, and electricians. The WAAF became the Women's Royal Air Force in 1949. Also in 1939, dictator Francisco Franco conquered Madrid, ending the Spanish Civil War. So some of the cost of living expenses for 1939 included the average price of a house, which was about $3,800. The average annual salary was about $1,800 a year. Rent was around $28 a month, and a gallon of gas was just 10 cents. A loaf of bread was 8 cents a loaf, a pound of hamburger meat was just 14 cents, and a new car was about $700. Some other famous people born in 1939 include John Cleese from Monty Python, Tina Turner, Marvin Gaye, Francis Ford Coppola, Ralph Lauren, and Lee Harvey Oswald. So this was the atmosphere that Jerry was born into. Jerry's parents were Henry Brudos and Marie Eileen Aldrich Brudos. Henry was born in 1896 in South Dakota. According to the 1940 census, Henry had been a farmer Marie Eileen was born in 1904 in Iowa, but when she was still just a child, her parents uprooted their family and moved to South Dakota. Later, she and Henry married in 1926 when he was 30 years old and Eileen was 22. She was a homemaker, and the couple had their first child, a son James, in 1936. So, this was 10 years after they got married, which I kind of found interesting. Then, three years later, Jerry was born. As the story goes, his mother had desperately wanted a baby girl after little James and was sorely disappointed when she had another boy. And she didn't bother to try to hide her disappointment either. Eileen would either completely ignore young Jerry or belittle him. She was, in fact, cruel and highly critical of every little thing he did and never truly bonded with her younger son. His father, Henry, did try to shield him from some of the verbal and physical abuse, but he had a short temper himself. Jerry's family was poor and were forced to move fairly frequently, and his father had to take on casual jobs wherever he could. In 1941, when Jerry was two years old, the family moved from South Dakota to Portland, Oregon, and then finally ending up in Corvallis, Oregon. Now, Jerry's mother, as we said, lavished all of her love and attention on James. So during his early childhood, Jerry was left to his own devices, roaming the neighborhood freely. On one such occasion, at around five years old, while wandering about, he came upon a junkyard. There, he found a pair of patent leather, high-heeled shoes, and excitedly brought them home. Some sources stated that he wore them into the house, proudly. And as he happily showed his mother his find, her reaction was shock and utter disgust. This reaction from her confused and saddened the boy. She insisted he take them back to the dump immediately, but instead he hid them in his room, not wanting to part with them. Sometime not long after, his mother found the shoes and made a whole example of her disgust by burning them and then punished Jerry severely. But the shoes changed something inside of him, Because after his first experience with the high-heeled shoes, where he got such a big reaction from his otherwise uncaring, unbothered mother, well, his obsession was firmly in place. The Brudos family very briefly moved down to Riverton, California, when Jerry was seven years old. It was said that his new classmates teased him for being a, quote, sickly child who suffered from migraines. But he didn't dwell on that for long, because he noticed rather quickly that his second-grade teacher just happened to have kept an extra pair of heeled shoes under her desk. Jerry decided to steal them, and he hid them elsewhere in the room. But a classmate had known what Jerry had done, told the teacher, who became quite angry, and Jerry left the room humiliated. It was said that he unfortunately did not pass the second grade. Shortly after, Jerry was diagnosed with measles and he complained of having a sore throat. Swollen glands were detected. He had laryngitis and had to get several operations on his extremities to fight against fungal infections. Dear God. It was said that his headaches were so intense. They left him unable to see. Sounds like severe migraines to me. The school thought that, you know, perhaps glasses might solve these problems, but after a visit to the eye doctor, they couldn't find a need for glasses. A very thin prescription was given to Jerry with the thought that they might function similar to a drug placebo, but his headaches persisted. Also around this time, his IQ was tested and the results showed that he was average. Jerry's family moved two more times to Grants Pass, Oregon, and then to Wallace Pond, Oregon, where his father went back into farming. At Grants Pass, Jerry's neighbors had several teenage girls, and the now 12 year old Jerry began to sneak into the house with the girls' brother and play with their clothes. At this time, Jerry's shoe fetish expanded to women's undergarments, and so the houses he would sneak into he would steal the girls' underwear. At 13 years old, Jerry's brother, who was then 16, had, you know, a normal fascination with the naked female body. James had drawn several pictures of nude females and kept them hidden because, and rightfully so, he was scared that his disapproving mother would find them and become unreasonably angry but Jerry eventually found the box the drawings were hidden inside of, and he was able to pick the lock. He was caught in the process by their mother, of course, and took the blame instead of telling on James, because hashtag bro code. So as Jerry began to go through puberty, his body did what normal young men's bodies do, you know, in the middle of the night. And when his mother would discover the evidence of this, She would act completely disgusted, you know, make a big show of it, and made Jerry wash his stained sheets by hand. But it is important to note that Jerry began to have bizarre fantasies about how he would capture a girl, force her to obey his commands, and beg for mercy. And then, when Jerry was 16 years old, his family moved again to Corvallis, Oregon, Brother James began studying electronics at Oregon State University, while Jerry continued his habit of stealing women's shoes and underwear and using them to, let's say, enhance the pleasure of masturbation. Also around this time, Jerry stole the underwear of an 18-year-old girl. He decided he wanted to take it a step further and get a nude photograph of the girl instead of relying on the underwear for his sexual pleasure. And, side note, I'm purposefully not calling them panties, you perverts. So Jerry set up an elaborate plot to get the girl to pose for the nude photo. He asked the girl to come to his house under the guise that he could help her figure out who took her underwear and get them back. When the girl arrived, she was accosted by a masked man with a knife that forced her to remove her clothes and then took several photos. The man left and the girl got dressed and fled. But before she could get away, she ran into Jerry, conveniently, who said, Oh, he saw the intruder and had locked him in the barn. The girl left and informed the police of what had happened. So after being caught, His parents put him in a psychiatric facility for full-time therapy, but it was said that it did nothing to alter his behavior. His dark and disturbed fantasies grew. Once released from the facility, he immediately began stalking young women and either hitting them in the head or strangling them into unconsciousness, then running off with their shoes. At 17 years old, Jerry could no longer control himself. He committed his first violent assault on a teenage girl. Jerry talked a 17-year-old girl into getting into his car, where he then drove her to a deserted farmhouse and violently beat her, nearly killing her. Now, a couple just happened to stumble on the scene and they called the police. When they arrived, Jerry stated that he had just stopped to help the girl and was not the attacker the police were allowed to search his home and car, where they found women's underwear, nude photos of women, and photo equipment. Jerry was then arrested for assault and battery, but since he was a minor, he was sent to Oregon State Hospital to be evaluated for possible treatments. His diagnosis at that time was schizophrenia, adjustment reaction of adolescents with sexual deviation, and fetishism. The state did allow him to continue to go to high school during the day, only to return to the hospital after. And then after nine months, he was released from hospital care. Staff had indicated he was no longer a danger to society. But for Jerry, his time in the psychiatric ward helped him realize that his sexual fantasies revolved around his hatred of women, and especially his mother. He graduated from high school in 1957. And that was Jerry's childhood. There's quite a lot to unpack, so let's get started. I think we see pretty clearly that Eileen had um, some things going on. I didn't find anything about her being overly religious past what the average person was back then. But in the 1940s, when Jerry was a young child one can imagine that him wearing very high-heeled shoes into the house that he found randomly at the dump would have raised some eyebrows around the neighborhood. Today, most all of us wouldn't think twice about a five-year-old boy inserting his little feet into some heels and walking around, imitating his mother or caregiver that wore them. But her reaction seemed a bit over the top. She had to take something he was innocently curious about and make this big show about how completely unacceptable his interest was by setting them on fire. But this really shouldn't surprise us. She had, after all, wanted a daughter and mentally and physically abused Jerry because he had not been what she wanted. It doesn't appear that she made any real efforts to hide her disdain for her own child So what happens to a child who grows up feeling as if they were unwanted and unloved? According to Psych Central, when a person's first attachment experience is being unloved, this can create difficulty in closeness and intimacy, creating continuous feelings of anxiety and avoidance of creating deep, meaningful relationships as an adult. And I have covered attachment styles and disorders in one of my True Crime Science episodes, So I'll do my best to try to remember to link that in the notes. An insecure attachment style from an unloving childhood can ultimately impact how you communicate your emotions and needs, how you understand the emotions and needs of your partners, how you respond to conflict, how you self-regulate your expectations of partners and relationships, how you actually navigate your life, your work, your relationships in adulthood. Children's brains are like sponges. They see, feel, and notice parents' behaviors, attitudes, and energy. If parents don't model healthy emotional intelligence, their children won't develop strong emotional intelligence. Given that children look to their parents and caregivers for a sense of, you know, who they are, parents who do not show their children genuine, unconditional love it tend to create lasting harm to their children's sense of self. And boy, am I intimately aware of that. This trauma can also cause trust issues. They can have trouble navigating other people's personal boundaries, and they tend to take advantage of people or are easily taken advantage of. They build those walls that we all talk about to guard themselves they will not let people in to get to know them and keep their guard up for their own perceived protection. They often choose toxic people to be their friends or partners, often feel isolated, and are dominated by feelings of being a failure. And then we know that it can cause mental health issues like depression, anxiety, dissociative symptoms, substance abuse, phobias, and PTSD. And side note, guys, Hug your babies, hug your loved ones, and tell them how much they mean to you. I'm telling you to do it. It is vital. Now, it is not my place to diagnose anyone with anything, right? But my years and years of study, I would bet the farm that Eileen herself could have possibly had a borderline personality disorder or possibly narcissistic. If not, well, she certainly fits a lot of the criteria. Perhaps not, but that is just what it seems like to me. Her treatment of Jerry very much reminds me of Edmund Kemper's mother on a lot of levels. So as Jerry got older, he began to display very deviant behaviors, such as stealing girls' underwear to, once he was going through and on the other side of purity, having violent fantasies about complete and utter control over a female, He got off on the thought of her knowing that she was trapped and begging for her freedom. He went to extreme lengths to get nude photos of a girl and graduated all the way up to attacking young women, beating them, strangling them, and assaulting them all, for the most part, to get their shoes. The fetishism here, I agree with, obviously. So what we see here is that, through his own admission— he felt an intense hatred of women. Not unlike Kemper, these girls and women were substitutes for his mother and the fact that she had had such an over-the-top reaction to the heels when he was a small child had negatively reinforced his desire. When he was institutionalized, they diagnosed him with schizophrenia, adjustment reaction of adolescence with sexual deviation and fetishism. Now, This was the 1950s, and I think we can all agree that they threw that schizophrenia diagnosis around like hotcakes. I also think we can all agree that that wasn't the issue. For me, it seems as though he did have an insecure attachment issue due to his mother's physical, mental, and emotional abuse, feeling unwanted and unloved. I think he did develop a sexualized fetish for women's heels, as I said, because of the negative reinforcement from his early childhood. Jerry was described as sickly, and it would seem he suffered from migraines, and we already know that abuse affects the child's immune system. He was also uprooted a number of times to move to a whole new area, and even though I got some negative comments about what I've said about children who are moved around a lot, Even though the plethora of data is quite clear on that subject, he was not able to form any secure attachments outside of the home. So what we have is an isolated child who was abused on nearly all of the levels, who was shown, be it through words and or actions, that he was not wanted, which unfortunately led him to not being very fond of women. This accumulated into the grisly acts that he would later commit. So, let's get back into the story. So, shortly after graduation, Jerry attempted to go to college, but ultimately he dropped out. He then joined the military and nearly as quickly was discharged after visiting a military psychologist who said he had, quote, bizarre obsessions. When he returned home, his parents made him live in the shed. Now, while running an errand one evening... He noticed a young girl who was also walking and decided to follow her home. He made the quick decision and strangled her until she was unconscious and then took her shoes. He went back home and slept with the shoes in an attempt to feel more powerful. When he was 22 years old, Jerry became an electronics technician and married 17-year-old Darcy Metzler, though her parents very much disapproved and then they moved to Portland, Oregon. Darcy was a very sweet girl and devoted herself to Jerry, which he had never experienced from a woman in his life. They then very quickly had two children, but were forced to move house repeatedly due to Jerry not being able to keep a steady job. Darcy would later describe their marriage as close and loving with him buying her gifts for holidays and anniversaries, and one can see why he would adore her. I'm guessing she mothered him completely. She was, however, completely unaware of his darker side. He did ask her to do housework naked, save a pair of high-heeled shoes while he took pictures of her, now, some might think that odd, and others might think that as long as she was willing and consenting, well, it was just a happily spicy marriage. But Cherry's life seemed to be comfortably falling into place. He had a loving wife and adoring children. And though he changed jobs frequently, he was able to support his family. But he began to complain about having migraines so intense that he would experience blackouts, so, to, quote, relieve his symptoms, he decided to stalk a girl and waited outside of her home for her to go to bed. He then broke into her house. He choked her until she was unconscious, raped her, and then stole her shoes. His wife was also beginning to notice changes in his behavior. She was growing weary of having to move due to him changing jobs so frequently, She also noticed that he would have very little to do with their daughter, and she was becoming alarmed at the increasingly strange sexual demands that she did not enjoy, but endured because, unfortunately, girls were taught that that's what a good wife did—endure. But Jerry began to feel rejected, which pushed him to eventually commit murder, or that's what he convinced himself— In January 1968, 19-year-old Linda Slauson knocked on Jerry Brudos' door in hopes of selling some encyclopedias. While his wife and children were home, he was able to get Linda to follow him into the garage that his wife was not allowed to enter without his strict permission, might I add. He then bashed her in the head with a piece of wood, effectively knocking her unconscious. Jerry then strangled her to death. Now that he finally had a female body with which to play, he took her clothes off, then had her try on, in air quotes, different underwear and heels. He posed her corpse in very scandalous positions, took photos, then finally decided to cut off one of her feet to keep it in a freezer he had in his garage so he could use it to model women's shoes. He then dumped her body over the side of a bridge. 23-year-old Jan Whitney was driving back home from Thanksgiving with her family when her car broke down, leaving her stranded on the side of the road. Jerry also happened to be driving on his stretch of road, and he spotted her and pulled over to offer assistance. But his uh, assistance was strangling her instead and having sex with her corpse. Her body was later found tied to a piece of railroad iron in 1969. In May of 1968, Jerry put on women's clothing and waited in a parking lot. Nineteen-year-old Karen Sprinker was exiting a department store when she was kidnapped at gunpoint by Jerry and taken to his garage. There, he had her model several pieces of women's underwear and heels while taking pictures of her. Once he was done, he raped her, then strangled her by hanging He then continued to have sex with her dead body several more times. He cut off her breasts to make a mold and then tossed her body into the river. Jerry's next victim was 22-year-old Linda Saley. He kidnapped her from a shopping center and brought her back to his garage. He did the same to her as the others, forced her to model women's underwear and high heels while he took photos. He raped, strangled, and continued to toy with her body after she died. He did an experiment on her body to see if he could make it move by running high amounts of electricity through it, but nothing happened. A month later, Jerry attempted to abduct another girl, 15-year-old Gloria Smith, but she managed to escape him. He attempted to kidnap a few younger and college-aged girls that were able to escape, but they reported that they had gotten phone calls in their dorm rooms or homes and set up blind dates. So he was calling them and setting up blind dates. One of Jerry's favorite things to do after murdering a girl was to put on high heels and pleasure himself. In May 1969, the bodies of Jerry's victims were beginning to be found in the nearby rivers. Police began to question young women around the college campus where they had been receiving those strange phone calls. One student claimed she had gone out on a blind date with the caller and described him as a heavy-set man with light hair and freckles. She also stated that he seemed fascinated by the news that dead women were being found in the river. She agreed to inform the police if he called again and would set up another date. And wouldn't you know, Jerry called her again for another date, and when he arrived at her place, he found the police waiting for him. They interviewed him, deciding to watch him closely. Getting a photograph of him, another young woman he had tried to kidnap identified him and the police quickly obtained an arrest and search warrant. After his arrest, what the police found in his garage would horrify them. What they found in Jerry's garage was copper wire used to tie the bodies, photograph of his victims pre and post-mortem, drawers full of carefully organized women's underwear. A female breast encased within epoxy, and one particular photograph, a victim hanging from a hook being viewed from a mirror that was placed below the body with Jerry's reflection in it. In all, 12 women went missing from the area that Jerry lived. He was found guilty of the three murders of which bodies were found, sentenced to life in prison, where he eventually died from liver cancer in 2006. His wife and children changed their names, moved, and started a new life, and really, who could blame them? So, something you might find interesting is that, while Jerry was in prison, he had piles of women's shoe catalogs in his cell. He wrote to major companies requesting them and claimed that they were his substitute for pornography. A psychiatrist that worked with Jerry stated he was psychopathic due to his callousness and lack of empathy and remorse for his crimes. Detective Jim Burns recalled a conversation with Jerry in which he asked him, quote, Do you feel some remorse, Jerry? Do you feel sorry for your victims, for the girls who died? Brudos then picked a half piece of paper up off of the table. He wadded it up into a ball and threw it on the floor, whereupon he replied, quote, I care about those girls as much as I care about that piece of wadded up paper. End quote. So tell me, guys, what do you think about this particular case? Obviously, I think schizophrenia is off the table, um, psychopathic definitely jives. I think there's some attachment issues there. There's a lot going on. Um, do we think that he might have displayed these behaviors or committed these crimes had he had a nicer mother? Well, that's sort of the crux of all of it, isn't it? Because we play this game every episode. We play this game of nature versus nurture, right? Born to kill or conditioned to kill. Oversimplified, but you get what I'm saying. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think that if there is, we know that there's this warrior gene, I've talked about it a bajillion times, right? Um, And it is only inherited through the mother. And because of the way that his mother acted, it makes me think that perhaps maybe even if it wasn't the warrior gene, perhaps it was just, you know, the genetic combination for specific personality disorders. You know, there's a lot of overflow and... Um, If one family member has one of the cluster bees, the chances of another family member having a cluster bee go up, right? So it makes me think that perhaps it was nature and nurture for Jerry. But I don't know, guys. Tell me what do you think. Leave me a message. um, Or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can join the Facebook page. It's Serial Killing a Podcast fan page that a beloved listener started for me. And the giveaway is still going on. I think we only have something around 35 to 40 people before we hit 500. And then we have the giveaway, which is my favorite true crime book, a t-shirt with my the thumbnail of my podcast on it, and some other little goodies. So... By all means, come and join us, right? But most importantly, thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.